you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. Week to week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure that is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord tonight? 2 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19, 20 and 21. 2 Peter 1, 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that you take heed. The writer is saying it's good for you if you'll pay attention to this sure word of prophecy. As unto the light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy, everybody say no prophecy, of Scripture is given of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. For a little while tonight, I want to take your attention into a, a thought process that I feel is important for us at this juncture. And uh, I hope that this is a good enough lesson tonight that at the end of the day, all of those who are unable to be here tonight will be jealous that they couldn't be here on this Wednesday night. So I'm going to do my best to talk to you tonight from this subject, why we believe the Bible is true. Pretty simple, why we believe the Bible is true. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you, Dylan. Why we believe the Bible is true. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do I trust my eternal salvation and build my life on the teachings of the Bible? Why? Is it because of tradition, because somebody handed it down, because somebody just told you that's what you're supposed to do? Or have you become assured in your mind that this word, the Bible, the Holy Scripture is valuable. Why is it valuable? It's true. How is it true? It's old. How old is it? 
It's tested. How tested is it? So have you put the lens of scrutiny on this Bible and become persuaded in your own mind? The Bible says, let every man become persuaded in his own mind. And that's what I'm going to challenge you to do tonight. And I'm going to tell you before we get there, I have about 16 pages of notes, and I'm not punishing you tonight. All right, you're here, so we're not going there tonight. I'm going to go a little while, and when I feel it's time to take a break, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back by the help of the Lord next Wednesday, and I'm going to pick up, and I'm going to conclude this because there's no way that I can cover everything I need to cover tonight without you feeling like pastor was mad at us and punished us for coming on Wednesday night. So I'm glad you're here, but I'm not going to punish you. But I want to take an in-depth look at this book, and we're going to talk about this book. Now, there's one. There's, there, there, we can say, well, boy, that was Bible preaching. There's one thing to preach and teach the Bible, and there's another thing to talk about the Bible. And so tonight I'm not drawing sources so deeply from the Scripture in preaching the Word. I'm preaching about the Word tonight and teaching about this, this book. Because I want to verify some thoughts, and I want to nail down some ideas, and I want to answer some questions. And for some who may feel like, eh, I'm not so sure that everything in this book is for me, I want to answer some questions tonight so that when we get done, this week and next week, if the Lord will allow, when we get done with this, that you say, my goodness, I clearly know why that I believe this book is worth building my life on. This book is worth trusting my eternal salvation on. This book is worth raising my family by. This book is worth building a life around. This book is worth establishing a marriage on. So all of these principles and things that we teach out of this book, but what about the book itself? How did it come about? How did it get here? How do we know? How do we know it's true? What is the validity of this book? How changed is it? Have you ever been, have you ever been challenged? Has anybody ever come and said, well, I don't know so much about that. I'm not so sure. I take most things in the scripture, but some things I'm going to take as a grain of salt. When we're done with this lesson, I pray to God that not one person in here will ever say there's a portions of that scripture that I'm just not going to accept or, or receive or live by. But I hope that you realize that every promise in this book is yours, that every word of direction in this book belongs to us and is for us to live by, and that this book will help you in every aspect of life. So let's talk about this book. Why do we believe the Bible? Why do we trust it? Why do we stand on it? First of all, the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Now, I am going to take you to Scripture to where Scripture proves itself, all right? So we are going to do that tonight. But I'm also going to make several historical accounts tonight. And we're going to talk about how history supports the Bible, and the Bible supports itself, and how by the time we're done tonight, at least I want to get to the conclusion tonight that you are comfortable with the fact that we can trust this word and that it is validated in our own minds. 
that we prove this in our own minds. So the Bible is infallible. The Bible teaches the Bible is infallible. And it is the infallible Word of God. Meaning, by infallible it cannot fail. And it is not the infallible Word of man, but the infallible Word of God. So it is God's Word that cannot fail. And the scripture text that we chose tonight, of course, spoke and used the term prophecy. It, it uses the word prophecy over and again. So before I get into this, I want you to understand that I believe fully in the fivefold ministry. Apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers, fivefold ministry. So I believe in the fivefold ministry. And I think we have gone ooky spooky on some stuff until some people make things differently than what they actually were in the scripture. And that is that the role or job of a prophet in scripture, now there were times when a prophet would come with a direct word from the Lord and they would speak to the people and say, thus saith the Lord, usually was a warning or a prediction of what was going to come. So a prophet would come and say things like, to a king, by this time tomorrow, famine is going to set into the land so strong that you will be selling a donkey's head for a certain amount of money for food. And the prophet's word was supported by the actions that happened. So it was validated by if the prophet said it was going to happen in the next day, it happened in the next day. If a prophet said it's not going to rain, it didn't rain. If a prophet said it was going to rain, it rained. But that was not the primary job of a prophet. At times he was a man of God and at times he did speak words that God spoke for a specific reason or purpose. The prophet would come and would read the word of God, the written word, the Old Testament. They would read the Old Testament to the people often on the temple steps. The prophet would come take the scroll and would read from the scroll and would make Scripture plain, would pull hidden things from the Scripture. When you read through the Scripture, how many of you read through the Scripture and you come back and say, oh my goodness, there's all these things that I'm learning and seeing. I was talking to Dylan the other day and he's telling me, Dad, man, I read this story and did you know this story said this? And do you know what that means? And I'm like, yeah, Dylan. And he's like, I never heard that before. I never seen that before. The Lord revealed it to me. I said, well, I preached that a couple years ago. You must not have been listening. And he's like, no, I'm reading through it. 
and it's coming to life and I'm seeing it and I'm understanding things that I never understood before. And I said to him, and when you read it through again, you'll see more things that you've never seen before. It's what the scripture does. And it enlightens and it expands. And the prophet of God would come and read from the, the temple steps and he would read and would expand on the scripture and would make it clear and make it plain to the people. And so the scripture here calls the word of God, the scripture, it is speaking of it as we have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you should take heed. Just like a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star the sun arises in your life. And he goes on saying that there's no prophecy of Scripture, making it very clear that it was talking of Scripture, that is given of private interpretation, meaning that the Scripture will support itself. That's not talking about that you don't have, a, as an individual, can't have an interpretation of Scripture, but it must be validated on the Word of God. And so this Scripture should validate itself, meaning that you cannot go to this Scripture and must not go to this Scripture and build Bible doctrine off of one particular Scripture unless it is supported throughout the Scripture. There is always, in anything that is doctrinal in this scripture, anything that is doctrinal should have a multiplicity of, of scripture by many infallible proofs. There should be many scriptures that all point to the same idea, to the same theme. So that when we go to create a doctrine, we don't go and get sidetracked by one scripture that may be referring to something completely different, but our mind takes it to a private interpretation. The scripture said the scripture was not given for private interpretation, but it should be, it should be strengthened by itself. Oftentimes in preaching, I use a term. I'll say there's a thread in Scripture. And what I'm referring to there is that I can take you from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There's more than one point. There's several points through Scripture. It is a thread, and sometimes I will point that thread, and I'll quote two or three or four or eight or ten Scriptures that I may tie together, proving this theme that is being unraveled in Scripture that becomes very clear to us of what the Scripture is saying. Making the Word of God infallible. It cannot fail. The Bible is absolute. In reality, people debate the Bible, but the Bible is not open for debate. It should support itself. We should be able to go to Scripture without having emotion attached to it, without being frustrated and wanting to argue with a friend or a family member. I had such a beautiful call that came in today. A cousin of mine 
Her name is Rhoda. She's my first cousin, and I haven't seen Rhoda. She's on my father's side, my dad's older brother. It's his youngest daughter. And I haven't seen Rhoda since my mom passed away, so it has been about, I'm guessing, 22 years. And out of the blue today, my phone rings this afternoon, and I answered, I saw the call from the area of home and was suspect that it was somebody in the area that was needing something, and uh, I thought it may be uh, connected to my family, and so I answered, and when I answered on the other end, my heart actually sank for a moment when she called because I haven't heard her voice in 22 years. And she said, you, you, those of you that's known me for a long time understand this, she said, is this Philip Wade? Because everybody in the South goes by two names. And I said, it is. And she said, this is your cousin Rhoda. Heart sank for a moment because I thought something was wrong. And she just called because she was missing us. And she started talking. And she started sharing some of the most beautiful words to me. And started expressing her heart toward our family and toward my mom and dad. And she said, I want you to know, in case I never have another opportunity to tell you this, she said, but I want you to know how important you are to me. She said, I get on social media. She said, I've noticed you quit you quit recording your, your messages uh, and, and putting them on live stream. And she said, I, I do know that you have a podcast. And I do get on to listen. She said, but I always loved watching, and which is a subject for another time. She said, I, I enjoyed getting on watching. And she said, your church has ministered to me so much. And she started talking about her childhood. And she said, I would never have been introduced to the Lord. If it had not been for your mom and dad who came when I was a small child and picked me up and took me to church faithfully. And she shared with me some things that I did not know. She said, when I would come home, my father would give me a very hard time, would mock me, would make fun of me about going to church. And she said, I never allowed it to affect me. I continued to go to church. She said, now, she apologized. She said, now, I don't still attend the kind of church that I was introduced to God in, the kind of church that you are, your family is. She said, I love Jesus she said, I go to church. I've been attending the church where I'm at for 36 years. And she said, I really do love the Lord. But she said, I had to call you to tell you how important that it is that you don't change what you believe and that you stand on what you believe. And she just talked to me for the longest time today. And I sensed that there is something 
that God is doing in her spirit that is drawing her back to a reference point of her childhood nearly 60 years ago. God is pulling her back towards something that she found. She said, now I don't want to debate anything with you in Scripture because I would know I would fall short because one thing I know about you and your family and your church, you people know what you believe. And I thought that's a compliment. And I said to her, Rhoda, that's one of the greatest compliments that you could ever speak to me. I love you. I'm going to do my best to get that live stream back up so you can watch our services. And we talked on for a little while. But the Word of God is not open for debate. It doesn't matter if how Grandma felt about it or Grandpa feels about it or Dad giving you a hard time about it. None of those things really matter. The truth is, is that the Word of God is still the same. She referenced a childhood that preceded my birth, perhaps, when my parents were taking her to church. I don't remember that. I was would have been too young if it happened after my birth. She uh, is about seven years older than I am, and so I would have been very young back in those days, and I have no memory of it. Did, didn't even know, never heard a story about it until she shared it with me today. But my point is this, that culture and time does not affect the Bible. This word is not shaped by culture. This word is intended to shape culture, not the other way around. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that holy men of God spake and wrote as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. The Bible is as relevant today as it was when it was written. It is not archaic. It is not something that does not fit in this culture and this time. Never be afraid of this book. Never be afraid that somebody's going to bring a culture thing to you with this book. And by the time we're done tonight, I hope that I have supported and strengthened you to the point that you're going to say, wow, I can stand on this word. The Bible's relevant. The Bible is a unique and remarkable book. Here's some interesting facts, neat facts. If you're a note taker, I'll try to go slow enough for you to write, and if you miss them, I'll come back to it again, and I'm sure they're probably recording as they do normally and putting it on podcasts. You can go back and listen to it again. But the Bible is a library of 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years. Now, I want you to think about that. This book was penned over a 1,500-year span of time. There isn't another book in history that took that long to write. But the Bible is spanned over 1,500 years. That's a long time. The Bible was written by 40 different writers. Get this in your mind now. 40 different writers wrote the Scripture. And those 40 writers, came. they all came from different walks of life. But remember this. They are writers, not authors. They are writers, not authors. There is but one author. Holy men, good, holy, righteous men wrote as they were moved on by the author, the Holy Ghost. 
So the Holy Ghost moved on them and they wrote 40 of them over a 1,500 year period of time. The Bible was written by kings and servants, by philosophers and fishermen, quite a span, a spectrum of people, by poets, by doctors, by military leaders, by shepherd and herdsmen, and even a first century IRS agent named Luke. He was a tax collector. There are many writers from all these different spectrums of life, but there's one author. Now get this. These men, over 1,500 years, 40 different men, wrote as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. Now get this. Now understand in jet travel, we're able to just hop on a plane and go to where we need to go. But when the Bible was written, that wasn't so. So you have to really understand this when you begin to look at authenticity of Scripture. The Bible was written in 16 different countries on three different continents. If you haven't said wow yet, you ought to say wow because that's some wow factor. Three different continents, 16 different countries, 40 different people with an array of different backgrounds over a 1,500-year span of time. And the Bible is so intricately woven together. Oh, can I add that the Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, mainly Hebrew and Greek, and some Aramaic. The various writers wrote from different places. Some wrote from deserts, others in dungeons, and yet some wrote from palaces. Some wrote alone on islands, some wrote on battlefields, on hillsides, and in prison cells. He had us covered. All of these different places, all of these different locations and continents and countries and different backgrounds of life over a 1,500 year span of time. Wow. Think about it. Now let's get this. Let's get this. Now, if I were to bring up a very controversial subject here tonight, one controversial subject among us that I could think of that would stir passion and panic is if I was to bring up the subject of politics and say we're going to, <laughs> I want everybody in the room to write two pages on their political view. I know most of you reasonably well and some of you very well and I do know this much I have to leave politics out of every sermon or I'm surely going to make somebody upset because I also have my own view so let's say that I ask all of us in this room to write two pages 
on your view of politics. And if we all were to write a couple pages on that subject, at the conclusion, do you believe that we would be in total unity and everything would be so woven together so perfectly? And I mean, we just have like, I mean, we're just a partial crew here tonight. I don't know how many people's in the room, but I don't know if there's 60, 75 people here tonight, uh, however many people's in this room. Uh, we probably couldn't even agree on everything, particularly controversial subjects. Like just one controversial subject, like politics. So if we can't agree on one subject that is controversial and we all would have our opinions, yet the Bible's written by 40 different people with various backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, on different, three different continents, different cultures, different countries, spoke different languages, yet they spoke in total unity and everything in this scripture lines up and there's a weave that it all completely intricately is woven together and is in complete harmony and it never contradicts itself. Wow. And it doesn't just speak on one controversial subject, but the Bible speaks in all sorts of very controversial subjects, yet they all agree because there's one author and they were moved on by that author. The Bible is a unified story of how God worked through history to restore his relationship with the human race. In the Old Testament, Jesus is coming. In the Gospels, Jesus is here. In the Epistles, Jesus is coming again. It just works together. Read it cover to cover. And when you do, you're going to find one hero, the Messiah. You're going to find one villain, Satan. You're going to find one problem, sin. You're going to find one purpose that it was written, salvation. The only reasonable answer to the amazing unity of this book is that there was one master architect and author who designed this book. The Bible, this book, is God's infallible word to the human race. That's me and you. I get excited talking about this book and the validity of this book. The Bible is the most popular book in history. Since the Bible began to roll off the Gutenberg Press in 1450 A.D., it has maintained the number one spot as the best-selling book of all times. It now sells between 30 million and 60 million copies worldwide every year. The Bible is also the most translated book in history. The Bible has been translated in over 1,200 languages and still counting every year as there are new languages being added and translated. The Bible is the single most popular book in the world, the most translated book in history. 
And get this, the Bible is the most smuggled book to ever have existed. In some places in the world, such as communist countries and many Islamic nations, people literally risk their lives to get their hands on this Bible. My wife has a video clip, and I wish I would have gotten it from her to show it to her as a missionary went into one such country. I believe it was in China. It was at least an Asian country. And they opened a box, and there were a group of young people. And when they opened the box and saw it was Bibles, and they ran and began to grab a Bible to watch their response to being able to have and own their first Bible ever, to not have to trust somebody else, but to be able to take it home. They hugged it. They held it. They kissed it. They caressed it. They just, they wept over it. Yet in America, we let it collect dust because it's become so common that we never even read it. No other book has ever been so scrutinized, ridiculed, criticized, misinterpreted, banned, burned like the Bible. Kings and emperors, dictators and governments have all tried to wipe out the existence of this book. But it just keeps living on. A noted French philosopher and skeptic, his name was Voltaire. You probably read about him in history. He died in 1778. Before he died, he made a powerful statement and was quoted many times in many books. He said within, within the next 100 years, this was in, he died in 1778, so it was prior to that. He said within 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Interesting story. When Voltaire died, they auctioned off his home. And it was purchased by the headquarters of the French Bible Society. The Bible outlives its own pallbearers. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. It doesn't need watered down to fit society. It doesn't need to be changed. Bernard Rome adds a thousand times over the centuries the death note of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession has been formed. The flowers were ordered and the inscription placed on the tombstone and the eulogy written for the Bible, but somehow the corpse refuses to stay put. The Bible lives on. This word this Bible is unique in its relevance. There has never been another book like it. It is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. This book will give you timeless answers for life. It will tell you how to raise your kids, improve your marriage, 
manage your emotions, control your words, handle your money, break bad habits, find fulfillment in life, experience God's forgiveness, find salvation and eternal life, and the list goes on. Despite all of this, some people are still not impressed. They want to still question the reliability of the Bible. I'm going to tell you and give you a couple of reasons before I close tonight of why you can rely on this word. If I haven't persuaded you already, but just some of the facts about the Bible, I want to talk about the Bible being texturally correct. Let me ask a couple of questions. Is the text we have reliable? It's been translated, right? There's multiple translations. I know here we use the King James Version occasionally. We may use another version for, a cl- for clarity or whatever in a, in, a, in a message or in a Bible study. And we always, but we agree that the most accurate, the most texturally correct that we have and can find is the King James Version, and we choose it as our Bible of choice. Is this text that we have reliable? Is the Bible we have today, is it what was written by the original authors? The integrity of any historical document depends on the number of manuscripts that we have to examine it. I want you to follow along. How do the the ancient manuscripts stack up with what we have today? The validity of the Bible would be based on the idea of how many manuscripts has been read and scrutinized in the translation process to see if we got what what originally was written. Of course, it was written in another language. So it's not only is... Has it been written, but the language has been changed. So let's look at other historical documents, such as Plato's writings. The famous Plato left seven different manuscripts. So as anything is quoted from Plato, they have seven different manuscripts that they can look through and find. And it seems that no one wants to question the authenticity if Plato actually wrote that manuscript. Aristotle, if you think Plato with seven different manuscripts was powerful, Aristotle's writings had 49 different manuscripts. 49. And nobody ever has questioned Aristotle's writings outside of the Bible. The record for the most manuscripts belongs to Homer's Ilias, or being translated Homer's poem. Those of you who may have been English majors in high school or college, perhaps through literature would remember and understand there were 647 manuscripts, the highest number of manuscripts that they had to go off of. 647. Only the Bible has more manuscripts. People read it and rejoice. All of the literature and English majors look and rejoice 
over the authenticity and powerful correctness because of 647 manuscripts. Yet, some of the same people will question the authenticity of this word. The Bible is the most documented manuscript in civilization. I doubt that anyone here would be able to pull off the top of your head tonight how many manuscripts actually exist. If anybody wants to take a stab at it, it was more than 647. Was it 700, 800, or 1,000? Actually, the Old Testament alone, just the Old Testament, there are 14 not hundred, 14,000 manuscripts and fragments of Old Testament dating from 500 to 800 years. In those manuscripts, there is only one variation in every 1,580 words. I should have done a PowerPoint for this tonight so you could see this and make it pop in your mind. One variation in 1,580 words, only one variation. And 99% of the time, the variation is only a spelling variation. 14,000 manuscripts. That is a lot of authentic translation. Yet Plato with six and Aristotle with 47 is never questioned, but 14,000 manuscripts with almost zero variations is scrutinized by historians. That's amazing. Critics have said that there were 1,300 years between the first copy and the latest copy of the Bible. They use that against the authenticity of Scripture. 1,300 years passed, they say, others 1,500 years, and they say, surely there must have been some mistakes somewhere through the process. Then there was this, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that happened in 1947. A young Bedouin boy, a shepherd, running on the hillside, threw a stone into a cave and he heard something break and he ran in to see what it was. It sounded like perhaps he had found a piece of pottery and he ran in and there he found some scrolls. And when they began to uncover them and look more deeply into them, they recognized what it was. And it is the most recent and most accurate. I was in the museum and saw them in that museum. The most recent and the most accurate of all of the scrolls was discovered. They had portions or all of every Old Testament book of the Bible. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscripts we had was dated around 900 A.D., but the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated a thousand years earlier, which would have predated the birth of Jesus. 
Anybody with me tonight? When they were discovered, the skeptic says, Aha, now we can see how much air has crept into the Bible over the course of time. And so they took the Dead Sea Scrolls and they put them under scrutiny. What shocked the academic world, the scholars and the skeptics, was that there was hardly any change at all. According to the article that I read, they said they found that 95% of the text was perfectly identical and the 5% that was a discrepancy was primarily spelling variations of words. The content and context was essentially perfect. Am I boring you tonight? Or are you realizing the authenticity of the Word of God? Well, if you think 14,000 manuscripts is good, the New Testament has 24,000 manuscripts. There are 24,000 copies of the New Testament in different languages from all over the world, including Latin and Greek and various other languages. In all of these manuscripts, there are less than one variation in a thousand words. Those variations are extremely minor and do not affect the meaning. It tells every story to explicit detail, including repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking with other tongues. Renowned archaeologist Sir William Ramsey stated, the Bible writers are of the first rank and should have been placed among the greatest historians that have ever lived. They were not just historians, ladies and gentlemen. They were holy men that wrote as they were moved on by one author, by the Holy Ghost. The Bible proves to be the most documented manuscript in the history of ancient civilization. And the Bible has more textual credibility than any other ancient document in history. No other document in history comes close to the scrutiny and proof of the Scripture. The text may have been preserved with great credibility, but that does not necessarily mean that the text is true. So the next question at hand is how do we know the text is true? I'm going to answer this question and then I'm going to send you to McDonald's. The Bible is historically credible. Those who oppose the Bible say that Pilate was a figment of the imagination in the minds of writers. They dreamed him up as a bad guy or a villain. According to history, Prior to this, they had no proof. They're saying, we, we find no leader such as Pilate. He was a made-up man placed in the Bible. But according to history, a helicopter gunship was flying down the coast of Israel and noticed a circle in the sand, and they began to investigate. As they began to dig and excavate an entire city called Caesarea Philippi in the magnificent amphitheater there, was uncovered. There was a plaque there dedicating it to the man who built it. His, main, his name was Pontius Pilate. When I was blessed to be able to take a trip to Israel, I've been there. I've seen it for myself. I've been to the museum and I saw the plaque 
for myself. I couldn't read it. It was in another language, but it's translated so that I could read it. Skeptics also say and point out that the Babylonian records, that there was no King Belshazzar that Daniel writes about. The king at that time, they say, was Nebuchadnezzar. They said the Bible is clearly wrong here. However, in 1956, a Babylonian chronicle was discovered that revealed that Nebuchadnezzar left his throne for a period of 10 years. During that space of time was the 10 years that Daniel wrote about. Belshazzar was replaced him as king for a 10-year period of time. And the Bible was once again vindicated and validated. They said there was no Nineveh. The book of Jonah says Jonah was sent to a city of Nineveh, but they never found any evidence of Nineveh. So skeptics scoffed and said the Bible is making up the city of Nineveh. Then archaeologists discovers Nineveh. The same happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. There was nothing in history to confirm that they existed. And then the Dead Sea began to dry up. And as the Dead Sea began to dry up, they found foundations of a city. And when they began to investigate and dig into it, they discover that it's the city of Sodom, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Time and time again, the Bible has been proven historically accurate. Every time that archaeologists stick a shovel in the soil in Israel. It seems as if God has directed them to a location and a place to be able to declare once again, this word is true. This word is true. This word is true. The Old Testament refers to a nation of people called Hittites. But historians had a major problem because they said they couldn't find any record of this nation. So historians say, aha, we've gotten a question in the Bible and there is no validity in the Old Testament or documentation of its accuracy. However, in 1906, archaeologists once again digging around and unearthed the capital city of the Hittite nation. They kept on digging and found 40 different Hittite cities. The skeptics had to again admit the Bible is right. As if every time that a spade goes into the ground, another of the Bible's critics gets buried. Over and over again, the Bible lives to be true. There have been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that substantiate the validity of Scripture. And every year, that number is rapidly increasing with more and more archaeological discoveries. Historian Nelson Gluck said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted one biblical reference. It has only assured its accuracy. Archaeologist William F. Albright said there can no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial authenticity of the Old Testament writings. Albright also said the acceptive skepticism shown toward the Bible has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of, in, to numerous details. This isn't true of other religious documents. 
The Book of of Mormons, for example, tells of a former civilization that lived in North America from 600 B.C. to 400 B.C. It records the names of tribes, cities, mountains, rivers, and even coinages used by the civilizations in that time. But not one historian, not one archaeologist has been able to produce a single artifact to substantiate that what is written in the Book of Mormons has ever been true. Yet people continue to believe the false teachings. But this word, hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God because this word has been substantiated over and over again. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses, the New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John both declare they are eyewitnesses. In 1 John, the Apostle John wrote that. In 1 John chapter 1 and 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He's saying, I know, I saw it, I witnessed it, I experienced it. I'm writing about not what somebody told me, but what I saw and what I witnessed. John is saying, I was there and I saw it. Peter told Mark the story of the life of Jesus and he wrote it down in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter is telling him, he tells us the same thing John did. For we did not follow cunning devised fables, fairy tales or stories, when we were made known to you of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses, he says, of his majesty. They didn't write about what somebody told them. I preach about, I preach about Jesus whom I've never seen. But they talked about and wrote about a Jesus whom they had witnessed with their eyes, about miracles that they saw themselves. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said to the crowds in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the city right over there, a man attested by God to to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. He did it among you. As you yourselves have known, in verse 32, he said, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The apostles didn't go out and declare of a Jesus whom they were told about, but they were there to personally witness his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Has these these things not really have happened they would have been challenged by everyone in their time and in their day. Experts like Craig Bloomberg and William Albright placed the writings of the New Testament account of Jesus 30 to 45 years after his death. During that time, there were eyewitnesses still alive that would have lived in that day, yet nobody came forward to say that what the apostles were saying was inaccurate. If the writers of the New Testament are not telling the truth, they would have been discredited immediately, but they weren't because eyewitnesses knew 
that it was truth and it was a fact. John Warwick Montgomery, dean of the Greenleaf Law School, said evidence of the Bible's his, historic, historically is so strong that if you were to apply the rules as federal evidence in court, that the Bible would stand up reliable in any court of law. The Bible passes the historical test with flying colors. I come tonight to remind you, I'm stopping here. Next week, if the Lord will allow, I'm going to talk to you about two things. The first is that the Bible is the inspired word of the Lord. And the second thing, I'm going to talk about how it fits into real life application in our life. I hope that I strengthen your belief in this word tonight. I challenge you, hide this word in your heart. Go home, dust it off, pick it up, spend some time reading it, get in it. Quit tearing pages out saying, I'm not sure, but declare this word, O oh Lord, will I hide in my heart.